Hello, I'm Rolf Fontenelle, this is the Schwepp, and today we are talking with Dr. Graham Miles, a lecturer in classics at the University of Tasmania, and a man who knows a thing or two about the great Apollonius of Tiana. <laughs> Graham, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. It's a pleasure. So, Apollonius of Tiana. I figure there's two main things we need to talk about with this man. First of all, who was he historically, insofar as we can say, what do we actually really know about the guy from a historical perspective? And then secondly, we need to talk about a work that I know is near and dear to your heart, which is mm -hmm. Philostratus' Life of Apollonius, which is a whole other kettle of fish. It is. It is indeed, yeah. So first of all, who is Apollonius? Right. So well, Apollonius is a figure of the first century of our era, um, and we know about him as a as a, a, a Pythagorean or a Neo-Pythagorean is, is more, more apt. Uh, we hear various things about him in Philostratus himself. Uh, our other sources are rather limited, our, our independent sources in particular, so we, we know a little bit about him from his letters. Um, that Some of these may be genuine, but some are also certainly written by Philostratus for the work that we'll talk about shortly. So what we know about the historical Apollonius is very limited. What can be done with that, I think, has really been done by Maria Zielska in her book about Apollonius of Tyana as a historical figure. Beyond that, the sources are really, as I say, very limited, so we can say a lot more about the Philostratean Apollonius and what he's like um, than we can certainly say about the historical figure himself. All right, so already we see an analogue to the figure of Jesus, mm, in the sense yes. that most people are going to agree that he was a real guy of some description, yeah, Yes. but getting at who he was, aside from the literary accounts of him, mm. is almost impossible. It is, yeah. I mean, there, there, are, there are some other references. I mean, there are certainly later things, later developments around Apollonius as a magician, the, the Arabic and the, the Byzantine traditions there. Uh, and there are, there are another reference or two. There's, there's one earlier one, which we've got, which is in Lucian, in his, uh, his work on Alexander or a false prophet. Uh, so one of his great polemical works about this um, other miracle-working figure uh, talks about a connection of, of, this, of this person to Apollonius and so that just shows what kind of person he was. So he's a, he's a fraud just like Apollonius. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's the, the whole uh, charlatan shown up by his associations there as well. So a thoroughly hostile work of Lucian, as, as his works of that kind are. Um, so our access to him is fairly limited. We hear about other sources which Philostratus mentions, but given his love of inventing sources, they may, not, they may or may not be genuine. Uh, and certainly there's all sorts of post and stuff, uh, which is drawing in one way or another on what he had written. Right. Yeah. Do we have... Was there a... Does, does everything that come, comes after Philostratus about Apollonius draw on Philostratus, or do we have evidence for other streams of now lost Yeah, there, there, to an extent we've got some other streams. So we've got, um, uh, as I mentioned, this letter collection, which is partly drawing on Philostratus and partly not. Um, there, uh, there, there's, there's also, of course, the magical tradition, which is quite different and separate. There's a papyrus, one of the Greek magical papyri, with a spell ascribed to Apollonius, and that's certainly independent of Philostratus, who's very keen to convince us that he's not a magician. Right. Um, so that certainly is a separate tradition as, as well. Um, much does certainly depend in one way or another on Philostratus himself. So Eunapius, for instance, the writer of um, philosophical biographies of Neoplatonists, refers back to uh, to the life of Apollonius and says that it should really have been called the, the, a visit of a god to human to humankind. Um, so he's certainly taken very much um, well he, a very particular view of Philostratus' line on on Apollonius. 
but uh, there, there's relatively relatively little that um, that is really you know, really independent of philosophers thereafter. Yeah. Right. Let's turn to the great man himself, the Stratus. Tell us about him as a man, first of all. Yeah, so Philostratus, yeah, fascinating writer. Um, he's a writer of the early third century, so he's sometime later than, than Apollonius of Tyana's own day. Uh, we know that he was associated with the court of Julia Domna, so Septim, the wife of Septimius Severus. Uh, so she was a, a Syrian originally, and uh, a very powerful, a very powerful and very interesting woman, but and also a patron of, of various writers. Um, a lot has been written about who was in the circle of Julia Domna, but we're beyond uh, the membership of Philostratus, we really don't know um, that all kinds of things have been imagined there, but who knows. Um, that uh, we're, The only information we have about that is actually from Philostratus himself as well. So he is writing after the death of Julia when he wrote The Life of Apollonius. It was she who asked him to write it, but um, she, to judge from the tenses of verbs in the, the dedication, is not, not, with, not with the world any longer by that stage. He mentions Apollonius in one other work as well, in The Lives of the Sophists, and it's a very interesting passage too, that um, this is a, a collection of short biographical sketches of sophistic figures, of professional public speakers of one kind or another. Right, so, so is that all the definition we need of a sophistic speaker? What's a sophist to a non-specialist? Yeah, so a, so a sophist in Philostratus' sense is someone who's steeped in what is already ancient Greek literature, who's able to perform spontaneously speeches in, in this uh, already archaic language, um, who will inhabit the characters of various historical individuals in making these performances. Uh, and, and this was a, it was quite a, a form of elite entertainment in these days. So they, these guys had big egos, uh, big brittle egos, which would frequently collide with one another. So that's a, a big part of the drama of the lives of the sophists as well. Right. Um, and one of these guys, uh, who was called Alexander the Clay Plato, uh, was uh, supposedly, uh, there was a rumour that he was the love child of Apollonius of Tyana. And in the life of Apollonius, uh, philosophers are very keen to say that's not true. There's no sexual slander whatsoever that was ever brought convincingly against Apollonius. But in the lives of the sophists, he's a little bit less sure about that. I mean, he, he says, no, no, this can't possibly be true. But he also talks about the extraordinary appearance of Alexander the Clay Plato and how he had this extraordinary sort of charisma and beauty like Apollonius did. And, well, maybe he's kind of hinting here. So he's a great hinter. So Philostratus is writing the lives of the sophists, but... Mm. He is himself a sophist. Ah, he is, yes. He's absolutely okay. part of this scene. Uh, and some of the later people in his chronology are people that taught him as well. So, so this, is the, this is how people have to contextualize. He's a, he's a professional orator, yarn spinner, yep. raconteur, yep. able to deliver philosophic high-minded sententiae, but also presumably able yes. to tell scurrilous stories. All of that, yes. So right. he's, he's certainly able to do all of those things. That eloquence is really his main thing. And also being... A kind of interpretive figure, some of that uh, sophists as we see them uh, in the lives of the sophists will go on embassies to emperors and do things like this so they can perform sorts of useful public duties for their mm. cities as well. Um, and also to be you know, people who, who are knowledgeable about literature, who can interpret literature in interesting and meaningful ways, who can do that similar sorts of things with artworks. Um, who can uh, write and speak interestingly about gymnastic training, uh, another topic on which philosophers wrote as well. Um, so that they're expected to have almost a sort of uh, pose of omniscience, that when he writes uh, one of his very interesting lives early on in the lives of the Sophists, the life of the Sophists Gorgias, who's a mm. really fascinating figure in his own right, um, so one of the classic Sophists of the time of, of Plato, or just before as well. 
Uh, and Gorgias in there is, is made to say some quite extraordinary things or, or, to, or to make some extraordinary claims about his omniscience that he can talk about any topic whatsoever, just put it to him and he'll, he'll talk about it. But one of the things that struck me about that passage, and whether anyone else buys my reading of it or not is another matter, but um, that he does rather hedge it, that it's the way he words it in the Greek, it's not clear that he's saying that Gorgias did this because he was so all-knowing or as if he was all-knowing. So that, that horse in the Greek can be taken in some interestingly ambiguous ways. So that, yeah, that's the kind of person that Philostratus is, and consequently the sort of person to an extent that he makes Apollonius into as well. Right. We get a sophist-philosopher hybrid. So this is important background because now we're going to turn to his life of Apollonius. And people, mm. people should just understand, like, what we're not looking at is what you might call a straightforward, unvarnished mm. history. Yes. Or, or let's say a history that has pretensions even of being straightforward and unvarnished. We're looking at a yeah. history that should be very entertaining. Yep. Yes. Stylistically interesting to a connoisseur of classical Greek, right? Yes, yeah. I mean, it, it is genuinely quite beautiful writing of its kind as well. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary piece of prose as much as anything else. And it's going somehow to be embodying s at least some of the concerns of a third century CE mm. sophist yes. who hangs around in the high echelons of Roman society rather than a wandering sage prophet of the first century. Yes, yeah, th this is right. Um, and we know only a bit about what the sources were in which he's drawing, but one of the things he does tell us about what he feels he's doing is, is to add that kind of stylistic sophistication to it. That, that's, uh, that's really his contribution as a sophist. And, and that goes beyond style to imagining, uh, imagining what Apollonius' travels must have been like and drawing on the kind of sophistic repertoire of ideas that, that he has available to him. So tell us about what you consider the high points, I guess, of, of Apollonius' life from, mm. based on Philostratus now, yeah. not based on what we actually know happened, but the story he tells. Yeah, so it's, 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 a, a, long, it's a very long work. I mean, yeah. it's, it's eight long books of, of Greek. Um, and uh, in terms of event... The, the main sort of movement is we've got the early chapters which are about, well, after a brief sort of prologue on Pythagoras and who's his sort of spiritual ancestor, as he says, the ancestor of his wisdom, uh, that we move then to the various sorts of birth stories around Apollonius, which are interesting and, and have often been compared to stories about the birth of Christ. Uh, more about those, I think we might cycle back to that a bit later on. Yeah. But uh, it moves from there to talk about his youth and his extraordinary sort of abilities as a philosopher. One of the curious things about him there is that he's a lone Pythagorean. The Pythagoreans are usually, I mean, friendship is an important Pythagorean virtue, uh, living in a community, uh, the kind of Pythagoreanism we see imagined pretty much everywhere else is always about being with a group. Uh, and he's a sort of lone Pythagorean. He learns from someone who claims to be a Pythagorean, uh, but who is really not much of a philosopher at all. And he says he's well, more like an Epicurean, which is taken to be a straightforward insult. But he, to find his real community, needs to go all the way to India. Right. So the, the journey to India is, is the main sequence of books two and three. Uh, so we have his journey through Persia and studying with the Magi there, and we find him uh, encountering all the, the kinds of wonders and extraordinary things that one might find on the way to India. Now, it's, it's certainly not impossible, given human mobility in this period, that the historical Apollonius did make a journey to India. Uh, if he did, it's, it's far more likely that he would have gone by sea than going by land. It would be much easier. Um, and uh, certainly in terms of contact between the Greek world and India, historically speaking, in this period, it's much, much the easiest way to do it. So go to Egypt first and then Yes, exactly. Ride a monsoon up, basically, yeah. is, is the, this, the standard um, approach at that stage. Um, so he may well have, have done something of, of that kind. Um, but 
taking him this way, of course, gives a whole lot of opportunities to philosophers. It lets him move in the path of Alexander the Great, the path of Dionysus, the god is supposed to have gone this way, so we encounter all sorts of Dionysus things, just as Alexander is supposed to have done. Uh, so it, it lets him do a whole lot of mythological stuff here. And one of the really interesting things to think about this text as a whole is a kind of mythological layering that Apollonius was a bit like Odysseus. And if we interpret the wanderings of Odysseus as the wanderings of the soul to its home, he's a bit like Alexander, only he does this peacefully. Um, he's a bit like Heracles, because Heracles is a bit like Alexander and Dionysus as well. So there's a whole, uh, whole range of, of mythological analogues that are, are being drawn on at different points. Sometimes Hippolytus, interestingly, as well that he rewrites the Hippolytus story to think about the celibacy of Apollonius uh, and as, as a way, as, I, as I've argued, to make, uh, to make Apollonius' celibacy a heroic thing. Right, um, rather than a kind of apparent Something, something which is just odd about it. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, so, yeah, that, that takes some work from Philostratus and, and there's quite a complex pattern of uh, allusions to, well, allusion to Hippolytus, but also the way in which he's made to be unlike other sorts of uh, imagined asexual figures like the eunuchs in Babylon, for instance. Right. Um, so there's a whole um, range of narrative strategies that are being used to, to create this heroic celibacy of Apollonius. Um, so the journey to India is really important. We've, we see him there studying with the Brahmins, and uh, one of the other uh, perhaps traditional questions about this text is how much Indian material can we find here? And there are certainly things that we can find parallels to in Indian philosophy, but they're all um, given to us in such a Greek way that you always think, well, maybe this is something from, from an actual Indian source, or maybe this is a bit of the Timaeus that we're looking at here. Yeah. Um, or maybe there were you know, Greek ethnological guides to India at the time that themselves mm. were 15th hand knowledge yeah. that had you know, started in India, but by the time it got to Greece, it was quite yeah. Garbled. It's it's filtered into Greek categories very much yeah. at, at the least. Well, and do they not um, speak purest classical Athenian? Yes, well, Greek? We, yeah, we find um, yes, yeah, certainly find um, Greek-speaking uh, Brahmins over there, um, and uh, he encounters a whole lot of of Hellenic culture along his way, which in some ways um, seems completely outrageous, but in other ways, in terms of the, the, the genuine presence of Greek culture in some of these parts which he's travelling through, uh, cities like Taxila, for instance, that, that he visits, um, there the description's pretty good in terms of what we know from archaeological sources Taxila was like. Um, and and it, does, um, it, it does have a certain verisimilitude that he could actually encounter Greek speakers here, that, uh, that, right. that that's not an impossible They might not have been speaking... The, the pure Attic Greek of the fifth century. No, but. no, that's that's rather less likely. But they were speaking uh, they were speaking a pretty decent bit of Greek. And, and, and if we think of other sorts of um, documents which we have from that part of the world, things like the the uh, inscriptions that King Ashoka um, had erected when he sent out Buddhist missionaries, the Greek of those isn't bad. Mm. Uh, and it certainly is translating ideas of Buddhism into a Greek which is clearly aware of the kinds of ways you use Greek to talk about philosophy. Yeah, so this is a little episode in world history that our listeners might not be right. familiar with. But yes. there was, when Alexander's conquests sort of receded, mm. he um, left behind the Seleucid Kingdom, which controlled, among other places, northern India and Afghanistan. Mm. That quickly became its own little kingdom in the mm. middle of Asia called Bactria. Yeah. And they became a Greek-speaking Macedonian Buddhist dynasty, mm. as we know from their coinage. Yeah, fascinating yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, these extraordinary cultural contacts that are, are happening there. Um, so, I, I must admit, when I was initially reading this text, I, I just saw it all as being sophisticated invention and nothing else. Uh, but my scepticism there has decreased over the years. Um, there's an interesting book, uh, which quite a recent one, 
which has the title of Philistrat's Apollonius and Zeiner Welt, um, which is not really quite what it's about. It's not really about Philosopher's Apollonius and, and his world. Um, but it does have a lot of very interesting stuff about the historical realities that, that can or, or clearly do in some instances lie behind the journey that we see there. Um, so the journey to India is a huge, uh, a huge big deal in terms of how the, the life as a whole works. Um, it gets a lot of the most interesting passages appear in there. And the, the Brahmins are really, they're his super Pythagoreans, that they're, they're treated as the source of Greek Pythagoreanism. Uh, and uh, consequently, he can go to the to the real source even better than learning from a, from a Greek Pythagorean community. Gotcha. And they have magic powers, do they not? They do. They do. Uh, we find them levitating and doing all kinds of remarkable things, controlling the weather to hide their their mysterious mound that they live on. Um, so yeah, they're they're an extraordinary bunch, and it's quite a, it's a long uh, a long sequence in in the the text as a whole. So having learned that over there, um, and again, we can see this in different ways. We can see what they're doing as a kind of validation of Hellenism as being, as, as saying essentially, Hellenism is, Hellenism is great, look how Hellenic we are too. Or we can see it um, a, a rather a different way and say that, okay, Hellenism is wonderful, but it's not an entirely independent thing and that uh, it, it does uh, credit a genuine alien wisdom, even if it is imagined in, in their own Greek terms. Mm. Um, so that brings him back, and uh, we move then from Apollonius as pilgrim, really, to Apollonius as object of pilgrimage, and other people now come to him as a kind of um, living object of veneration. Uh, so we see him in action in the various Greek cities, doing the sorts of things that holy men do, casting out demons occasionally. Uh, less of that than we would find in Christian hagiographic sources, but he does a little bit of that. Um, he does uh, some various uh, episodes of healing. Uh, there are some interesting clairvoyant sorts of episodes that appear in there as well. Uh, we see him traveling to other places too and uh, visiting, uh, visiting Egypt, uh, Egypt and Ethiopia. Uh, and there, again, a really interesting thing that this text does is to move the gymnosophists, the naked sages who are usually imagined as being ascetics in India. So this is when they're seeing sadhu and people like that um, and uh, the, the Greek imagination of such, such people. Uh, that these are moved uh, by Philostratus and later by one of the Greek novelists, by Heliodorus as well, and he takes them over to Ethiopia. And in Philostratus, at least, they're not in, in Heliodorus. He makes them a kind of lesser version of the Brahmins, or a sort of schismatic group that have gone off at some point earlier. Uh, so we hear about them. There's a kind of confrontation, almost really, with the, the Brahmins. And not a, a physical confrontation with the, the gymnosophists, I should say, but a, a, a confrontation of ideas and there there is really a defense in particular of the Hellenic way of imagining the gods, the anthropomorphism of, of Greek religion as against uh, the theriomorphism, the, the beast-shaped deities of, of, of Egypt. Uh, so that again is playing in, into particular cultural tropes around all of that as well. Uh, and then the, the climactic episodes, we have a, a, a run-in with Nero, the Emperor Nero, which is a kind of warm-up for the big one, uh, which is the run-in with Domitian uh, and Apollonius's trial, which um, uh, is such an important event that Philosophus has to do it twice, that he has to give the long speech that Apollonius would have given, uh, but then he kind of changes his mind on the day and just gives us the punchy one-liners instead. So we, we get it played both ways as a sequence of punchy one-liners, but also as, as the, the great sophistic speech, um, which uh, is defending against this charge of magic. It's in some ways quite similar to Apollonius' um, defense against uh, a charge of magic as well in, in his uh, uh, apology. Mm. Yeah. Now, this is interesting because Maybe this is a side issue. I don't want to get too caught up in this, but Apuleius, the great mm. Latin language, yes. uh, but an, but a sophist of a sort, an orator. Yes, absolutely a sophist. Yeah, um, yeah. Of, and the the writer of the greatest occult novel of all time. Yes, of oh, the a, Golden Ass. Yeah, we'll the, get to that. We'll yeah. get to that in the podcast. He is accused of 
magic, magia, mm. has to go to court and defend himself. We think this really happened, yeah. but of course, the, he then published his defense speech, which we have every reason to think he worked oh, up and no made, into a, yeah. made into a literary production after the fact. Yeah. Nevertheless, it was a real, it yeah. was really something that happened to people, yep. and if you were, I guess, eloquent enough, mm. it is something you could argue your way yes. out of. Yes. Do you think there's, a, there's truth behind this with Apollonius, that he was actually, this guy was actually called up on charges of magic? Well, it, it, it's not at all unlikely. And given how much uh, Philostratus wants to convince us that he was not guilty of, well, the Greek equivalent, goetea, um, of, of, of magic, um, given how much he spent, how much effort he spends on that, clearly these, these accusations were there, right. whether they were ever made formally or not. But uh, it also allows him to be a kind of uh, philosophic martyr in a way. Uh, but, of course, he, he vanishes uh, mysteriously at the, the key moment and, and reappears somewhere else in a cave of the nymphs, interestingly. So he does a feat of Pythagorean sort of bilocation-esque. Yes, yes it's, it's like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a cave involved. This, I wonder if this is an echo of you know, those early traditions associated with the Pythagoreans of cave incubation, yeah. bilocation. Yeah. Or, He's know. had one of those already, a, a cave episode, at a, a really interesting oracle, the Oracle of Trophonius. Uh, which is on the way to, to Delphi, um, the Oracle of Trophonius at, uh, at Lebedea, uh, that um, there he descends into the hole. It's an oracle you consult yourself by going down and doing this. Um, and we have really an extraordinary range of sources about this thing as well. The, the Philostratus expects us to know what happens there, so it doesn't really tell us very much. But um, It's absolutely terrifying what happens it, there. It does sound pretty terrifying. Uh, so we have quite a lot of detail of the ritual itself from Pausanias, who tells us about drinking the water of memory and the water of forgetfulness when you have the appropriate dream to tell you it's time to do it. Uh, and the, the even more amazing, rather psychedelic description of this in, in uh, Plutarch. Uh, Which where, we will be getting to in our episode on Plutarch's myths. Ah, right, very cool. Yeah, no, it's, uh, which sounds like it's, um, it's something quite intense as, as an experience, whether there's something psychoactive involved, which seems to be quite likely, from the description and also from the, the description of the ritual itself. At, at any rate, something quite remarkable happened to people who went down yeah. into this, this place. And apparently if someone had an expression on their face like they were terrified by mm. something, you would say, you look like you've been to Trophonius. Yeah, yes, right. It was, it was sort of a, um, a proverbial experience of terror and yeah, Aww. yeah, yeah. So Apollonius goes down there and is quite unperturbed by the experience, of yeah. course, because he's, he's quite unperturbable in everything. Um, but uh, it's it certainly we're, we're expected to know that this is an experience which is profoundly affecting and, and, and moving, uh, that it took people some time to be talked down by the priests after this kind of experience. Um, and it's a story of people forgetting how to laugh for a while after, after um, experiencing this. Um, so he's had his kind of cave moment earlier as well. Um, the, the Cave of the Nymphs thing is very interesting, of course, is a, a very famous essay about, um, about the Cave of the Nymphs by one of our other interesting figures of antiquity, um, not so very much later than, than Philostratus, um, the, the uh, philosopher Porphyry, uh, who uh, treats at great length in, symbolic, uh, in his symbolic allegorical reading of the, the Cave of the Nymphs in Homer. Yeah, so we should um, say this is originally a, a, a funny little aside that we find in... Mm. In the Odyssey, Odyssey, yeah. So it's when, when Odysseus has just finally made it back home. Uh, and given that the, the, uh, the Odyssey is read allegorically by this stage, and there, there are certainly traces of that reading, very strong traces in, in the life of Apollonius itself, uh, that it, it's likely that, well, he obviously doesn't know Porphyry's essay, that's, that's later, but he, he knows, I think, things a lot of that sort. So yeah, that's an interesting uh, detail. And just before the, well, the death or the ascension of Apollonius, depending which version he, he's 
we have various versions of his birth story and then another, well, three there and another, another three for the death stories as well, so it lines up in a nice, right. a nice numerological way. Can you give us, I, I think it would be a pity if we didn't get these stories. So first starting with his birth. How is he yes. born? Yeah, so the, the birth stories is quite the birth stories are quite nice. There's um, there's one uh, even before he's born of the god Proteus appearing to his mother, uh, and his mother is equally unflappable as Apollonius will be later on in life, and, and asks the, the appearing deity, "Who are you?" He says, I, I'm, "I'm Proteus, the sea god." And it's, it's it's interesting the way this is actually told. In that Philostratus then says, "We need to keep Proteus in mind in what follows." And Proteus doesn't really appear that many times in what follows. But when he, when he does, it's really quite striking the way that this does happen. It, it seems to be partly about the changeability of Apollonius, which in some ways uh, is rather hard to pin down because he, um, he seems to be quite consistent as a human being. Um, I've thought that perhaps what that changeability is is more the kinds of mythological figures that he's been likened to. So it's a way of starting that sequence of mythological parallels by means of a mythological parallel itself. Um, the other thing is that when he recalls his past lives, there's a past life chat with the Brahmins, and he doesn't mention Apollonius, uh, doesn't mention Proteus there, but what he does say is that he lived then on the Pharos, so the island where Proteus lived, so the, the island which is just off of Alexandria where the famous lighthouse was as well. Uh, and he talks about his life there and about tricking these pirates who wanted, to, wanted him to help them out in their piratical activities. Uh, and in that life he says he refused to do it. And why, that, why I think that's really interesting is because it seems there's a kind of protean character to Apollonius in that previous life, and there's a different sort of more philosophical protean character in the current life, the, the life of Apollonius. Um, so what I think is happening there is an idea that we find elaborated more uh, later on in Neoplatonism in someone like Iamblichus, who talks about the way that well, you, you, the soul gradually progresses to be more like the deity in whose procession it follows. So he's uh, drawing there on the Phaedrus. And I think, in a less technical way, that, that Philostratus is doing that too, or else the source that he's using is doing that too, uh, in order to say, look, we can see Apollonius improving between lives, becoming a, a better incarnation of Proteus. Uh, it's also a stylistic thing to talk about Proteus there at the beginning, that Proteus and changeability and mutability and variation, these are all things that the text is going to do as well. So it's setting it up as a Protean text. Uh, and at least one other reader saw that in antiquity too, that the poet Nonus uh, does similarly at the beginning of the Dionysiaca, that he uh, also has a, a protean uh, invocation there. So interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's clearly modelling that on on Philostratus. That's his like. pre-birth, mm. and then yes, how's uh, he born. Well, yes, we we hear about uh, her, his his mother once more. We are going out to to a meadow, um, and meadows often being an image of, of of innocence and purity, as they are, for instance, famously in the Hippolytus of Euripides. Uh, but she's uh, surrounded by swans. And again, the, the description here is really quite interesting because we, we hear about them uh, making their sound, and the sound of swans, the swan song, the idea of death, that normally they're, they're presaging death. Uh, but here they're presaging a birth instead, and the only other time that happens is, is, is some of the stories relating to the birth of the god Apollo. Um, the other reason that the swans are really interesting is that they appear in uh, stories also concerning Plato, the idea of Plato as being a swan and the dream that Socrates has before he meets Plato. Um, so there's a whole lot of, of Apollo and swan associations around philosophers that philosophers are then able to draw on. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting, um, interesting passage there. The swans make their sound, they fly off and this uh, startles his mother, brings on the birth uh, and there we are, uh, future sage Apollonius has come along. 
Uh, so all sorts of interesting omens and things, um, and there's a, a flash of lightning and thunder here as well at his birth, so we get some, some sort of Zeus action happening as well as the Apollonius, uh, Apollonius-Apollo connection. Uh, so yeah, a whole range of, of signs which are suggesting this is a very special individual, but also someone who's a, a particular sort of philosopher. And then, how does he die? After well, all, this, all these adventures. Yes, well, if he did die, as, as the, the famous poem by Kavafi says, the drawing on the life of Apollonius as well, the great uh, modern Greek poet. So we, we again have various sorts of stories here. That There's, there, there's one that, which really just relates his, his preparations for his death, that he's supposed to have had these, these two handmaidens, and there's one that he freed and one, one who uh, was kept uh, as a slave, but then she ends up, this turns out to be a great thing for her. Uh, he, in his foresight, has realised that her future owner will then free her and marry her. Um, which is interesting, the, the story about the two handmaids, because we get um, a sort of curiously dual handmaiden in the surviving spell as well. I, I'm not sure whether there's any con any connection there. So or this is a reference to the, the aforementioned um, yes, the Greek magical papyrus. Yeah, that's right. I don't know whether there's anything in that or it's just simply a coincidence, but it does strike me as, as interesting that we have a sort of duality of handmaidens in both of those stories. Um, so we have that, uh, that as one of the, the stories. The, the one which uh, Philosopher's Privilege is most is that he didn't die at all, but sort of ascended into the heavens. He goes to Crete, uh, goes to the Temple of Diptyna in there, so a form of Artemis, a special form of Artemis in Crete. Uh, and despite the protestations of, of the, the local priests, he, he goes in there and disappears and uh, has apparently ascended to the heavens uh, with a, a choir of invisible maidens singing uh, that it's time for him to depart. Um, so it's, it's, a, uh, it's an interesting telling of that again in all sorts of ways. The, the, the fact of these, vo these unseen maidens singing is an interesting one because previously whenever we've heard, uh, we've heard women from out of the, the range of visibility in this text, it's always been to do with things like um, the, the eunuch episode where a eunuch has been trying to latch on to, to the women and this sort of thing. So we've had this motif of women off stage, so to speak, beforehand. And now it takes on this totally different uh, meaning. I don't know whether, again, I'm over-interpreting there, but um, if any writer would be happy with you over-interpreting his work, I think it's philosophers. Well, we'll come back to that, the question of interpretation, because <laughs> yes. there's some really, really interesting stuff to talk about. So listeners will get it now that this guy has a sort of magical life mm. from beginning to end, right? yes. a, a God-informed life. He's got portents for his birth. He goes on to be this incredible philosopher, but philosopher not meaning someone who has um, a lot of specialized knowledge but someone who can do magic stuff let's say yeah who can yeah. work wonders yeah who, for the who, good of humanity th this is right yeah that, that he can he can work these sorts of wonders and and a lot of them are really to do with perception uh, and that again speaks to the Pythagorean path that he's on um, and the way that this is described as, as clearing the aether in his soul um, clearing the soul in order to perceive more truly uh, and it's because of these, this, this abstinence, uh, abstinence from wine, his chastity, um, the, the, the very restrained way in which he lives, uh, that he's able to, to do these things is the implication that, and sometimes the statement of, of the text. When he speaks on philosophical topics, it, it is often pretty commonplace. It's not things that are going to startle anyone who knows about popular philosophy of this period. Um, there are a few occasions on which it gets more interesting, but Mostly it's not for dogma that we return to this text. It would be quite disappointing in that regard. Uh, but certainly it's the idea that philosophy is a life, that it's a way in which you live, and that that, that both impresses other people but also is useful to others. Right. 
Yeah. And it gives you power. It does, yeah. It, it, it gives him uh, certainly a perceptive power, but also beyond that, other sorts of miracles that he, he, he yeah. works. Yeah. And then he doesn't die at the end. He Maybe. Yes, yeah. it's, it's left open, as so much is in this text. That there's often a, a sense of, we're not quite sure where exactly this person fits, whether he's uh, a, a very special human being. A lot of people in the text say he's a god, uh, but he never says that himself, nor does the narrating voice ever say that either. So the text doesn't say, you know, this is a divine incarnation exactly. It says there are these various traditions about him, uh, that various people responded to him in that way and saw him as divine, but it doesn't actually vouch for that. So there's uh, what um, uh, another writer on this text, Yapian Flintherman, aptly calls the, the uh, ontological uncertainty of, of Apollonius, that it's not quite sure exactly what he is. Mm. Um, that too, incidentally, is another very Pythagorean feature, that the idea of being in between humanity and divinity is something we find around Pythagoras himself. So it's, it's true, a very old tradition, actually. Yeah, yeah, there are three types of being, yeah. gods, men, and Pythagoras. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. If that's his life, I'm just thinking it would be very interesting to talk about this, this idea of the theos aner. Mm, yes, yeah. Could you, could you just run down that idea and its history? Yeah, so the, the idea of the Theosanere um, is that uh, around the time of the writing of the Christian Gospels, um, including the non-canonical as well as the canonical ones, and the life of Apollonius, and we apparently find this, traces of this in other, other sorts of texts as well, there's this idea of the divine man, the Theosanere, uh, and that we can define this type by looking at the text in which he appears, and in particular the life of Apollonius was used there a lot. There's a long discussion about this in the really starting in the 19th century and then moving, moving onwards and into the 20th. And there is some truth to it, but there's also a danger of circularity in that we end up creating this figure out of the text and then saying, look how well these texts exemplify this sort of figure. So that's not great methodologically, of course. Um, but uh, I, I tend to think that there is a certain idea of what the holy man is like, um, and that, that, that undoubtedly is true. There are certain tropes which appear in all of these texts. Um, including the Christian Gospels and, and the life of Apollonius. Uh, it's the, they don't actually use the phrase theos near. that's not really a phrase that they ever use, yeah. um, that, that, that is a modern coinage. But nonetheless, it's a modern coinage which does refer to an, a genuinely ancient phenomenon. Yeah, and it's interesting, it's a new kind of hero, isn't it? Or a new kind of holy man, because, yeah. I mean, you've mentioned that Apollonius is, is abs sexually abstinent, for yes. example. Yeah. I mean, in the classical period, that would not be seen as... No. Virtue by any of them just be seen as bizarre. Well, that's right. I mean, this is why he needs to rewrite the Hippolytus story, because Hippolytus, of course, comes awry and is destroyed because of his celibacy and his rejection of desire and rejection of Aphrodite. Um, but when we get that story being rewritten in Philostratus, and, and interestingly, in some of the, the novels, the prose fiction that's being written at this stage too, which is overtly prose fiction, whether there's fiction in Life of Apollonius as well, when they're rewriting it, they rewrite the Hippolytus story with a happy ending. Right. So we, we, have, we have a Hippolytus who, who ends just fine in these stories, in uh, the, the latter-day Hippolytus stories. And again, what the text does quite interestingly here is, is to not overdo this with Apollonius himself, but to have him approving of other celibate youthful figures as well. So rather than uh, giving us the suggestion that uh, there, there's something about Apollonius that makes the same kind of thing keep happening to him, to emphasise the point that way, um, instead we find him... Uh, having those kind of stories about himself, but also the, the sort of approval of others uh, for their, their chastity. We have those twice. So there's one fairly early on, and there's another when he's in prison in Rome awaiting his trial for, mm. in front of Domitian. 
And what do you think of the idea? Um, I interviewed Daniel Ogden, um, a man who knows a thing or two about yeah. these wonder-working type folks. Yeah, yeah. And you know, th- there's several theories about the relationship between Jesus and Apollonius, and and the life of mm. Apollonius. Yeah. And he basically thinks, yeah, probably one aspect of Philostratus's motivation here, what he's one of the things he's doing. Is writing a kind of pagan answer to yeah. the Jesus story. I'm, I'm glad to hear him saying that as well, because that, that certainly is, that, that's pretty much exactly how I would put it too, that um, I don't think it's it's all that, that Philostratus is wanting to do by any means, um, but I think there is certainly a, a response to Christianity which is in here, even though he never names Christianity right. anywhere in his works at all. Um, it's hard to imagine he didn't know about it, and it's also, I think, quite hard to imagine this is not in part at least a response to that. Um, for a while, it was fashionable to, to say, no, that it can't possibly be a response. But I think that's turned now. But I, I've noticed people more in, more recently in articles about this, uh, this text have been saying, yes, that is part of what he's doing. And I also think, you know, that that's part of what's driving the broader philosophy and project, which, which I've argued is a kind of attempt to create an overarching Hellenism that includes ideas of the holy man and ideas about uh, the Greek gaze as the interpreter of others, uh, it includes uh, a sort of re- rejuvenation of gymnastics and the way in which we think about visual art and all kinds of other things as well. So that in itself is not solely a, Christi- a response to Christianity either, uh, but it is partly a response to that and partly just in a sense that the world is changing and what are we going to do and how can we keep our, our culture as a whole, um, how can we make it into a whole really, rather than a sort of ramshackle development of many centuries, which of course it is. Yeah, but I guess at a certain point, a culture will come to a phase where they classicize everything and try to mm. make it into a museum piece yeah. in some way. Yeah, well, it certainly it, it does do that sometimes as well. Um, and, and it's remarkable about the people of this, the, the writers of this era, I mean, people like Philostratus and other, other writers that we lump together in this term, second sophistic, uh, that they can make it as lively as it is, that it doesn't just feel embalmed and like a museum piece. It does still have some life and, and originality and newness to it. Right. Um, largely, you know, by, by being playful. Um, that, that's a, a huge part of it, that playfulness mm. is part of, of what Philostratus is doing. Um, that's one of the things that makes this moment really quite interesting because we find other sort of later attempts to do this, to make a sort of overarching Hellenism. Uh, I think we can see someone like Porphyry doing that in the ways... Julian. Uh, Julian, of course, as well, even more emphatically doing that. Yeah. Um, so we find lots of other later kinds of attempts. I mean, Proclus, I think, in his way, is doing that too. Um, so all sorts of later major Greek thinkers are, are undertaking similar sorts of projects. but. Uh, the sense of play rather tends to recede. They have uh, no sense of humour at all. These no, guys. no. Um, whereas Philostratus does. He is actually really funny and playful and wants to leave things open. And that's kind of what... Uh, the, the openness is part of the point. Uh, the fact that you can't pin these things down to, to one single meaning is a big part of what he's doing. Well, on that open-ended point, I will say, Graham Miles, thank you very much for chatting with us. Yes, well thank you. That's been fun. And uh, stay esoteric. Of course.